On this episode, the Ruby Crest Trail, outdoor education, van art, and Eddie Van Halen. Tears! Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Today, we are welcoming a friend of mine, um, an educator, uh, uh, Appalachian Trail through hiker, uh, an all-around kind of hiking badass, Adam Salinger. Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I love your podcast. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Um, so, Adam, you run um, a school, basically, which is called the Atlas Learning Academy. Why don't you tell everyone what it is and how it came about? Well, Atlas Learning Academy is a public school, so it's part of a public school district. Um, and Atlas is actually an acronym that stands for Achievement Through Leadership, Adventure, and Service. And those are our three pillars, adventure, leadership, and service, that we're built on that a lot of students come um, directly for. We serve um, students in uh, kindergarten through 12th. We're mainly focused on third through 12th, and we have students in a variety of different uh, age groups. The majority of our kids are high school students, um, and my career was always with fourth and fifth graders, and I worked in a general ed classroom for 20 years, um, focused on 10 and 11-year-olds. So working with teenagers is, is brand new in terms of the last five years and a ton of fun. Uh, what I did in the in the general ed classroom, though, for all those years was always try to get the outdoors um, into the classroom as much as I could in that kind of setting. And I built a lot of curriculum around things that I love, which uh, tend to be around, around trails. So I built a, a whole project around the John Muir Trail one year um, and then a whole theme and project uh, around the Appalachian Trail one year. And kids did all the planning of the hike with me and learned about gear and food and mileage and elevation, how to read maps and use compasses and, and all those things. Um, and then uh, for the Appalachian Trail project, um, after they did all those things, I left and I took a, a leave of absence um, and hiked. Um, and I was able to communicate back and forth with them in 2000. It was before anybody I knew um, was rich enough to own a cell phone. So I had this little device that um, was like an old-fashioned fax machine, and it screamed into the phone and listened to the screams. And I attached that to uh, the payphones I came to in Trail Towns, and that's how I communicated with my class and sent my journal entries home, and my kids followed me the whole time. Um, so uh, about tw 18 years in, um, I wanted to really get deep into the outdoors. I, I, I had done enough bringing my kids on field trips and overnight outdoor ed trips. Um, so I went back to school. Um, with two former teaching partners to get our master's and our admin credential because we were going to open a charter school based on outdoor education for kindergarten through uh, sixth grade. Um, and in the 11th hour of the year and a half of getting our um, credentials, California didn't get money for charter schools that year. So our dream was shattered. We were matched with mentors and mine was actually the superintendent of a neighboring district. He encouraged me to build my final admin project around the charter school we had built with an angle of creating an independent study program instead. 
So I teamed with my two former teaching partners and we added in Clint, um, a mutual friend who was in the program at the same time. And he was a teacher and still is at Phoenix High School, the school that I leveraged my teachers from. And we created this independent study program called Atlas. Uh, the advisory team loved it. The neighboring district created a job to get it off the ground. I interviewed and got that job and we're in our fifth year of, uh, of existence at this point. Uh, just one question. What's a payphone? Ah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> How many of the kids now that you teach have, have ever touched or even know what a payphone is? Right. Very few. Very few. <laughs> yep. Adam, what's the difference between an independent study program and a charter school? Because I don't know. I don't know like what the difference is there. Is sure, that... sure, sure. Um, an independent study can uh, uh, school can be a charter school, actually. So it's the difference between um, uh, a charter school, which is technically a public school as well, and then a non-charter school, um, which is what most of us um, went to and are familiar with. So my school is independent study, which means that students have the power and the control to um, go the speed they want to go um, in school. They can go faster. They can go the, the same rate as their peers might be going. Um, but they also have the power and control to, to create a lot of curriculum around what they're interested in and use that as their learning platform. Um, they're not in a classroom every single day in front of a teacher. Um, they have a week's worth of work at a time from a teacher that they are to get done with the help of their teachers um, and times when they come in and get help. Uh, and then they meet with a supervising teacher once a week to review what they've worked on and make a plan together for the next week. Um, that's what independent study is in a, in a basket. And then ours is centered around the outdoor ed, which makes it uh, completely different than any other independent study program really in, in the state of California at this point. Very cool. Yeah, so Adam, the, the kids who uh, go to Atlas Learning Academy, do, you know, they obviously have an interest, I'm assuming. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a choice to go there. And uh, so these are kids who presumably have some interest in the outdoors already. Um, do you get kids at like varying levels of experience, some that are kind of more new to, say, backpacking or hiking or whatever other other kinds of outdoor activities you do, and some that are more experienced? And how do you mitigate those those differences, those gaps in, in, uh, in learning? So um, there's a lot of pieces to that. And inherently, independent study is an educational platform that, that fits students that really didn't fit in the traditional environment. They didn't fit into a classroom. They didn't learn in the same way maybe that others learned or at the same speed. Um, so I get kids for every reason you can possibly think of. And the adventure piece is always a piece of why they come or what they either are interested in on some kind of level. But I get kids um, from every kind of background that you could possibly imagine in the community that, that we draw. So um, ultimately, those kids that get to me do end up having a, as wide a, um, a level of experience as you can imagine. I get, I get students who have been doing outdoor activities with their families their whole lives, and that's why they found me. And I get students who um, have never had the opportunity to do anything in the outdoors at all. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of fun to those two levels of experience because those students that have been out forever 
um, have all kinds of advice in terms of getting ready for a trip. And yet the students who have never participated in any of these kinds of events are looking through it um, looking at it through a different lens also than these kids with the experience and they bring up questions and ideas that the kids have been doing it for years and even myself don't necessarily think of right away because we're kind of in that in that rote model of, of doing it a certain way. Um, what we do though before all of our multi-day backpacking trips is that we have a series of labs. All the students no matter what their level is go through those labs. Um, and those labs are based on a variety of things in terms of understanding the gear that they're going to be taking. We own all the gear through grant writing um, to setting up a tent, to setting up a jet boil stove, um, understanding how to use the water filters, also going through a leave no trace class and getting a certificate. So they all go through map reading, compass reading, they all go through all of these labs that help prepare them to end up packing their backpack and we do a gear shakedown where they bring all their clothes and food because that's the only thing they bring and we go through and take out two-thirds of what they think they're going to bring so it's a lot of fun um, but that's kind of what levels out those students in terms of uh, the experience they come with now when you're on these trips are do you have to teach other subjects like do you have to do like math and english as well or is it pretty much all just like uh, nature immersion when you're on the, when you're doing it um, from my standpoint, what I'm doing is nature immersion. I'm doing lots of nature games out there, um, and I'm doing projects um, out in the backcountry that are either associated with that specific area. We've done wilderness first aid um, training of, of students out in the backcountry because both myself and my partner who go on the trips are both uh, woofers, wilderness first responders, um, and, and are trained in, in that area. Um, so we do a lot of different things, but a my students are coming to the trip with a project they've already developed with their core teachers, my high schoolers especially. So maybe they've developed a, uh, um, a project around the geology of what they're going to be seeing in Point Reyes National Seashore, and they're coming with tasks that they are going to do while on the trip. So it's, it's kind of a mix. The one thing that every student does is they write a paper um, on the second afternoon, they, they choose a prompt off a list of prompts that we've written and they disappear into their own areas and they write a paper. Um, and then the tradition is that at sunset, they give a formal presentation of that paper with either the ocean behind them or a high altitude lake behind them or a mountain behind them. Um, and that's kind of a tradition for how we, we culminate our trips. That sounds really cool. I, I think, you know, Jason, I think we should maybe uh, institute a similar uh, uh, process for our backpacking trips, you know? <laughs> no, definitely. Yes, I think so. <laughs> I could have written quite the paper on the rubies. It would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should mention, we should mention that Adam uh, joined Jason and I and our, uh, our friends, um, Derek and Anthony on our uh, backpack trip recently on the Ruby Crest Trail in Nevada. And Adam's such a badass. He he did in one day what it took us two days to cover and caught up to us at our campsite on that uh, on that third day. Oh, before so. no, before our campsite, he caught up to us like yes, well before yes. our campsite. Oh, I think it was oh. even funny. Cause it was actually a, quite a hard day for us. It was I think it was like what ended up being like thirteen miles, and uh, and it was like a lot of straight up and then straight down, and they were like it's like up six hundred feet, down six hundred feet, up eight hundred feet, and uh, we were kind of dying. And we looked across uh, like the valley to like the top of the next hill, and there was kind of like this uh, wily e. coyote stream of dust <laughs> flying up through the air, and this like speed demon thing like flying 
along the trail in our general direction. And um, of course, we knew we had been in contact on our garments, so we knew that uh, we were going to meet up that day. Secretly, I was hoping we were going to make it to camp before he caught us, just out of like some dumb ego thing. But it wasn't even close. I mean, you you. And then you reeled us in so fast from when I first saw you that, that it was it was pretty impressive. Yeah, that was that was uh, humbling. Um, one of the things you touched on is that you go over all these skills, and it sounds like all of the students, on when they're on one of these trips, are you know basically able to be self sufficient. So they know how to fire up their stove, they know how to set up their tent, they know how to you know navigate on the map with the compass and all of that. And um, I I mentioned that because my wife and I were just talking about this this last weekend. She says, you know, you should show me how to use the Garmin because, you know, we've got a Garmin device, you know, and usually I'm, you know, like I carried one on the Ruby Crest Trail. But uh, if we were out somewhere and, you know, together and something happens to me, you know, God forbid, you know, uh, and she needed to use it, she should know how. And I, I, it it's it's one of those things where we just kind of fall into a routine of we each have our roles at at camp or when we're backpacking or whatever and um it's easy to forget that you know everybody needs to know how to do everything you know you need to know how to fire up the jet boil and set up the tent and and use a garmin if you if you needed to yes absolutely agreed and it's it's empowering for my students to to learn those things and to learn the skills that many of them um, take on with them after they they graduate Atlas and 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 end up doing things that they you know wouldn't have had the skill or the interest or the exposure to do in the first place. I was just going to ask Adam. That leads me into um. Do you do you find that their kids when they go off to college or when they continue career or college after high school through with your program that they pursue careers or degrees that are outdoor related or like biology or environmental. Um, have you do you do you have any stats or do you notice just even anecdotally that like the kids sort of take that with them? You know, um, anecdotally, yes. I mean, we're only in our fifth year, so uh, I don't. Maybe we've had two kids graduate college at this point because our first year we only graduated seven. We've graduated over sixty now. Um, but what I can tell you is that, for instance, um, skiing. We, uh, we take kids skiing all through the winter um, and we take them to Squaw Valley and they get lessons um, up at high camp uh, and they've taken the tram to the top of the mountain for that and they spend the day skiing. Um, and I have a whole collection of students who after graduating from Atlas have continued skiing and have specifically saved money for ski passes so that they can now take up this new sport that they love so much. Um, so it's, it's fun. And I, and I, and the same is true with backpacking students that had never gone backpacking before who were now going hiking with their families on the weekends. And, and that wasn't something that was happening. Um, so I think maybe in a few more years, I'll have some good data on careers. Um, but right now we definitely have some good data on changes of lifestyle based on the exposure that they're getting when they're in school with us. Very cool. So where is the school located and where do the students come from? Like how wide of a range? Because I know you mentioned Squaw Valley, so I'm assuming you're, I can guess the general area and I looked on your website, yeah. but why don't you share? We're in Placer County. So um, the school is in the um, city of Lincoln. Um, and my district is Western Placer Unified School District. So we're um, just uh, east, or I'm sorry, just west of Auburn and just east of Sacramento, Sacramento being the largest city. Um, 
our kids, for the most part, come from Lincoln, but many of my students come from surrounding school districts and surrounding cities. Um, by law, in independent study, I can take any students that come to me from Placer County or any county that touches Placer County geographically. And when you look at a map, um, that is an enormous area of students that I can, that I can take. And right now, my, my students that come from the farthest is El Dorado Hills, which is about 45 minutes away. Um, so lots of students from lots of places, absolutely. Um, so just curious, because um, you say you're close to Sacramento. How much gas do you think you would need in a car to get you from Sacramento Airport to the town of Lincoln? <laughs> we should ask Jeff that, right? Yeah, why don't we ask Jeff that question? <laughs> more than um, whatever is in my tank, you need a little more. <laughs> yeah, so so little background story on that that's kind of funny. And one... Uh, we, when we did a screening thing with Chris uh, Smead, who we had on a few episodes ago, we screened our movies together, and one of ours was in Lincoln as a fundraiser for the Atlas Learning Academy. Um, and Jeff off was one of the keynote speakers, and obviously they were screening my film, so um, Jeff offered to pick me up at the airport. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> he did not fill up his car with gas, and, and exiting the airport, we did not see a gas station and ran out of gas halfway to the theater, and I think the event actually started while, like, we had to send someone to come pick me up on the side of the road. And, well, Jeff waited for AAA. Thankfully, he made it in time for his panel, and I made it in time. But I think um, No Attack, the film which I was, one of the films I was screening that night, had already started. So, so yeah, very... Uh... <laughs> and, and Jason will never let me forget this. So No, and in, in, never. In my, in my defense, okay, we got to, I picked him up from the airport. I was running on fumes. I knew that. But I'm like, well, we're at an airport. There's got to be gas stations all around this place. And so we started headed out, heading towards Lincoln, following the directions. And did we see a gas station? No. <laughs> we, you know, it, it was it was bad. Well, since we're talking about that, um, and I and I mentioned No Attack, you know, the short film I made years ago. Uh, Adam has actually gone to the No Attack, and you, how long were you there? You were there three weeks or a month this summer? Three weeks. Three weeks this summer. And, and got some just uh, amazing photos uh, while he was there. And we'll, if it's all right with you, Adam, we'll put some of those in our show notes so people can see some of the great wildlife shots you got. But uh, why don't you tell people about that trip and, and, and some of the cool wildlife encounters you had? Well, Alaska has always been on uh, my bucket list. I worked in Southeast Alaska for a couple summers in a cannery, but I'd never been up into um, the, uh, the main section of, of Alaska and always wanted to go north. And um, just knowing Jason after after all these years um, and and doing our film screening, um, I was lucky enough to meet um, one of the no attack Jim Slinger and have formed quite a relationship with him over the years. And um, with a lot of his um, support, uh, had planned a trip up into the Brooks Wayne's onto the No Attack River myself with another friend. So. Uh, it was uh, it was over the summer and it was touch and go all the way until um, literally we got on the plane in terms of COVID, in terms of COVID testing and flying and all those things. Um, in the end, uh, from the time the bush pilot dropped us off on the upper Noatech um, to the time he picked us up three weeks later, we did not see a single human being nor anything man-made. It's the only place I've ever been on the planet. I can say that for sure. Um, it was a magical trip. Um, even all the things that went wrong went right. 
Um, I've never seen more wildlife in my life. Um, I've never hiked in a tougher place in my life or a more beautiful place. Um, but by far, the, uh, the most special thing was the sun really not setting. Um, and when it did set, it didn't set long. So we would hike for, you know, 12, 15 hours a day and never feeling like we had to turn around um, because we knew there'd always be enough light to get back to where we were going. So uh, we, spent, uh, we spent 21 days off and on the NOAA tech. Um, we had planned to be on the water quite a bit more than we ended up being on the water. Uh, there was a, a major rainstorm that lifted the, uh, the NOAA tech six to eight feet. It kind of changed our plans and we found out that where we were supposed to be picked up was actually flooded. So uh, we needed to be picked up about 70 miles sooner, which gave us more time for backpacking. And, and that's what we, uh, we loved more than anything was finding a canyon and going all the way to the back of it to see what was there. So it was, uh, it was truly stunning wilderness. Were you in a, you, you flew in in a float plane, right? Or we flew in, no, we flew in a gravel oh, okay. plane. He landed on the gravel bar. Yeah. Landed on the gravel bar. Um, same plane landed on the gravel bar to pick us up. And that, that second gravel bar was the one that had been washed out. Yeah. When we went, well, you've seen the movie, but, um, we, we flew in on the float plane. So I was going to say, it's kind of odd. I'm like flooded. Wait a minute. Aren't you in a float plane? Can it, can it land on the, uh, <laughs> I know from, from talking to Jim and tip who, uh, you know, Jim was one he mentioned and they were the subjects of the no attack, the short film. Um, they've had, they've had the planes land like actually on the river on some in pretty shallow places and stuff like that. Those pilots are pretty amazing. It, it's quite terrifying if you've never done it before in certain situations, like you're taking off in this tiny lake and you're, you know, heading towards, you're like, there's a cliff right ahead of us. We're going to make it right. You know, of course the bush pilots are all old season hands and they're just kind of like as mellow as possible, like sipping coffee and like laughing at you for being a tourist. But, um, I'm so happy you got to experience that. Did we mention it was in gates of the Arctic national park? Just, just so everyone knows the no attack river. That park is just amazing. It's up in the Brooks range and it's just as like wild and pristine. There's no roads there. So you have to fly in. Uh, the only thing I can really think of way to describe it is it's just like this, like wild like Eden. I mean, it's just so pure and so natural. And I mean, we have great wilderness experiences in the lower 48 here, but you know, usually there's a lot of people and a lot of people have trampled most of the places we go. I mean, when you get up there, you really get the sense that you're out there and you're by yourself and there's no one around. And, and it's, it's a really great feeling. Um, maybe not for everyone, but if you want to, you know, you've found some great wilderness trips and you've enjoyed some backpacking and you want to, you know, push it to that next level, that's a great that's a great experience going up to the Arctic. When the only um, trails are game trails uh, in terms of following, uh, it's a it's a special place. And and when walking in the water, uh, a good majority of the time is easier than walking out of the water. Uh, you know you know you're in someplace special for sure for sure. And Adam, where did you grow up? And sort of how did you get into the outdoors? And what sort of inspired you to sort of start this journey? I grew up. Uh, I grew up in the concrete jungle of Los Angeles till I was 12, actually, and, uh, and did not come from a family that had any interest in the outdoors at all, whatsoever, and was very lucky to have a cousin that was going to summer camp on the East Coast, and a grandma who was paying, and well, she needed to, uh, to treat me the same way she was treating my cousin, so she sent me to summer camp, and summer camp in the East is going for the entire summer, summer camp in the West, that, that really didn't exist. Um, so they found a camp um, up in the mountains uh, near Port Portola in California um, that had about six sessions throughout the summer, two and three week sessions. 
um, and one week sessions, maybe two. And I went the whole summer. I went to every single session. Um, and getting to go to every single session meant I got to go on a backpacking trip every single session. So every summer I'd get to go backpacking at least five or six times while I was going to camp. And I, I went to this camp from the time I was uh, nine years old to the time I was 20 and worked from a, a camper to a junior counselor to a counselor um, and, and learned to do everything outdoors that I do now. Um, and that's actually where I first picked up a, a National Geographic um, with somebody hiking the Appalachian Trail on the front and said, that looks really interesting. And I think I was about 12 at the time. That's funny because I, I distinctly remember that same National Geographic article and seeing that and that really making me want a backpack. Um, and to be honest, I think when I saw that, I'd never even heard. I didn't know of the Pacific Trest Trail. Um, I maybe knew the John Muir Trail, but I don't know for sure. But I think my first exposure to like through hiking was reading that National Geographic article when I was in high school. It's a special magazine. I've, I've got that magazine sitting in Atlas. Um, and it, it's a special one to me for the same reason. That's really what... Uh, kickstarted my my interest and and then love for uh long distance backpacking um and just getting out there um so why don't we talk a little bit about your appalachian trail adventure what was because that's the one through hike you've done that, that's that long correct you haven't done the pct or um I not and as a californian i mean did you know of the pacific crest trail and the continental divide trail when you did them what, what made you decide you know as a westerner to go east and do the uh, appalachian trail i did nobody in 2000 was doing the continental Trail. I mean, nobody was doing it. It, it, it. it just wasn't something that people were doing. Pacific Crest? Absolutely. I had done um, uh, many hundreds of miles of the Pacific Crest Trail um, over my years of backpacking, and I had never been to any of the 14 states that the Appalachian Trail went through. And I just thought to myself, what an amazing experience to be able to go through that many states and go that many places I've never been before. Um, and I didn't know a lot about the East Coast. Um, and I kind of learned about it with my class as we were doing that project. And kind of since I saw that magazine as a kid like you, I always kind of thought it was something I'd do at retirement. Um, but uh, my wife was in law school um, full time at night for four years and working full time during the day. So we didn't see each other. Um, and it was uh, it was a, a perfect time for me to take a leave of absence from work and, and do it um, 20 years ago now in 2000. Uh, and I didn't know anyone when I went. Um, and I came away with lifelong friends. Um, it's a very social trail. Um, and there were times where I walked alone and times where I walked with other people. But to get to experience the entire East Coast um, in, in that short of time was, uh, was pretty special. What was sort of your, especially coming from the West Coast, what was like your what were sort of like the big like things that you remember or big takeaways of like the difference between West Coast and East Coast? Like what are the things that surprised you or that you weren't maybe weren't prepared for, even with all your experience? Yeah, I think the biggest thing when you say that, the biggest thing that pops into my head, um, because I was just in the East Coast again for, for about a week and a half. But the biggest thing that pops into my head is that the vast majority of the time you are walking through a green tunnel and you see nothing. There are no views whatsoever, and you will hike all the way to the top of a mountain, and there will still be no view at the top of the mountain. Um, and the trees are absolutely beautiful, um, especially this time of year uh, when they're all changing color. Um, and the forest is very different as well because there are so many deciduous trees in the forests of the east. But the fact that it's a, a solid green tunnel the vast majority of the time with 
with very few views really differs from from doing backpacking you know at high elevations here in california which you know ten thousand and above you know in high elevations in the east or you know three and a half four thousand feet uh and it, it takes a lot to get out of tree line and it doesn't happen much on the east coast so really the biggest difference for me obviously the the flora was very different back there but but the fact that you just don't get those big views like out west uh that was that was the big change yeah that makes sense i hiked in new hampshire a little bit and i just were, like and i know this is like being dramatic but it felt claustrophobic almost because like most of my outdoor mountain experiences is sierra and so it's this very open expansive you know big views, like he said, like big views above tree line. And when I was in New Hampshire, I was like, I have no idea where I am. There's no, like, I can't like, I have no bearings, what direction, like northeast, southwest, like it just, it was very, it's a much different experience. Beautiful. And it's gorgeous. And there's streams and water. And there's something very peaceful about it. But it's totally different. So I, I can really... and, you're, and you're right, the navigating, the navigating is completely different, because you have no point of reference, because you're in this green tunnel the whole time. So very, very, very different place. Um, very beautiful, extremely beautiful. And, and that's kind of why I decided to, to go east rather than, than, than stay here. Um, I guess it's like, you know, not going to college in your hometown kind of thing, right? <laughs> totally. So we know that you started with summer camp. I know you have a daughter. When did you start uh, taking her in the outdoors or, or have you taken her out into the outdoors? So I've got a 16-year-old daughter named Isabella and she is a badass. Uh, I started taking her backpacking at six months old and at about four started having her walk part of the way and ride on my back part of the way um eventually she uh she got to the point where she was carrying her own pack and walking the entire way by herself and we created uh, a loop every summer uh culminating in a in about a 60 mile loop in 2017 uh down in sequoia national park she took a break for about three years from backpacking, and uh, she joined me again this year and hoofed it up to uh, the top of Paiute Pass and into Humphrey Meadow, a climb of uh, over 2,000 feet, and uh, she's, uh, she's back to being my, my backpacking partner, and I'm, I'm glad to have her back. So I go back a little bit to um, to like your teaching and that experience. Do you um, do you see like a lot of transformation? I, I I mean maybe I'm wrong, but when we were kids, I mean even if you weren't outdoorsy per se and you weren't exposed to the outdoors like hiking or you know climbing or camping or any of that, I still spent almost all of my time outside, right at the park with my friends you know, on the green belt, running around, causing trouble, chasing frogs, things like that. Maybe it's just my old man perception now, but it seems like kids have become much more sedentary and much more into the screens, much more into the video games, and less and less interested in the outside world. Is there a perceptible change with some of these kids or all these kids or most of these kids when you bring them outside, especially the ones that maybe haven't had any experience out there? Yeah, they're different kids. They're, they're completely different people when we go out there. Um, they're not allowed to use their phones, even if we get service. Uh, they can take pictures, but that's it. Um, and that alone puts them out of their comfort zone, right? Um, not being able to have that piece of technology in their hand 24-7. It is, it is amazing the conversations that, that students can have with each other and that I can have with students when we're in the backcountry that would never work in a school. We couldn't have those conversations in a school. And the relationships that are formed and deepened when we're in the backcountry, as you know, from being in the backcountry with friends, um, 
is, is something that you can't duplicate in the front country. But what's so special about it is that they bring that deep relationship back from the back country, back to school and back home. Um, and now they forge relationships, like we all know, with people that they may never speak to um, in the front country or at school. But because they've had this shared experience with them um, on one of our trips, they have now made a new friend. They have now realized that uh, people aren't always what they seem on, on the outside or at the surface, so to speak. Uh, so the big change that I see among students and, and the children that we take out there is their ability to go deeper into themselves. Um, and the big advantage of that is they always bring that back and it always helps them be more successful all the way around when they get back to school, even with their education and their studies, because now they have more of a buy-in with the adults that have taken them out there. Um, they have more of a connection. And because of that, they're willing to work harder. They're willing to ask more questions. They're willing to, um, to do a bit more than maybe they were doing when before the trip. So we see all kinds of changes with, with students. And we have only had one student ever in five years say, that wasn't for me. Um, and I'm not going to do it again. And it was a it was a student on a ski trip. That same student has gone on day hikes and multi-day backpacking trips and would go on more if we could do them right now. Which leads to a good question, which is COVID. So <laughs> the, the, the days of COVID, <laughs> the decade that has been COVID, <laughs> the decade of 2020. Um, so out of, like Adam, I mean, it seems in some ways a school like yours would actually be ideally set up in a lot of ways to manage COVID. Um, but what challenges have you guys sort of faced? You know, has it enabled more students to continue their learning in a positive way? Um, yeah, it's just sort of how have you guys risen to the challenge? It's a double-edged sword, um, as, as a lot is with COVID. Um, there, you know, we've, we've definitely seen, you know, some, some positive things out of, out of people um, not doing some of the things that they used to do and spending more time with family and, and those kinds of things. Um, COVID's kind of the same way in terms of uh, a program like mine. Uh, on, on, as a whole, my students are earning more credits and getting through more curriculum than they were before COVID. Um, they knew the system before and there's not much of a change to the system now. The biggest change is that their work with their core teachers, which used to be on a drop-in basis, is now scheduled um, and done virtually, like we are doing this podcast. Um, biggest difference there. Um, so, so the transition curriculum-wise and learning-wise has not been um, a negative one for the majority of my students. With that said, um, obviously, I can't, I can't take kids out into the backcountry right now. And it's, it's, it's not so much being in the backcountry, which is also impossible right now with the fire since the backcountry is closed. But it's, it's also impossible because we can't stick eight kids in a van and go anywhere. Uh, we can't drive 45 minutes up to Donner Peak to do a day hike. And we sure can't drive 12 hours to go to Zion for a week like we do every September. So the biggest challenge for us right now is, is we can't get kids in a car to go anywhere. Um, and again, as I said, there's nowhere to go right now anyway, because everything in California is, is pretty much shut down in terms of where we want to be. So our, our biggest challenge right now is that we can't offer what a lot of students are with us for. We also can't offer what will benefit a lot of students 
who don't even know it'll benefit them because that's a good majority of what we get a lot of the time too is students that are they come to us and maybe they're not interested in the backcountry and then they go on one of these trips and they're hooked um, but the biggest challenge is that we can't take any more students than we're taking and uh, one of the big outcomes of COVID right now which the general public doesn't really um, understand is that schools are funded on attendance and schools are funded on students showing up to school but that funding model this year with COVID and students are, or schools are not being funded on kids showing up at schools. Schools are all being funded on a, on a number from last March before schools closed, basically. Um, so uh, for me personally, I had 45, 42 kids last March and I grew to just over 50 by the end of the year. Well, I can't as a school get funding for any more than 42 children right now. So even though I have uh, 40, about 42 children, I have a waiting list of about 70 right now that want to be with us. Um, and we could take them if we could have the funding, because if we had the funding, we could also hire another teacher. None of that can happen this year. So there's no growth for a lot of schools and schools that committed to taking more kids are actually losing quite a bit of money this year. Um, so that's another challenge right now is that there are so many students that are looking for what we offer. We can't take them right now, and that's uh, it's really frustrating. And and not and there's nothing we can do except wait for that funding model to change back to what it used to be. Hmm. That's terrible. Um, just another sad 2020 thing. And to show you how timely this show is, Eddie Van Halen died today. I don't know if you guys saw that, but that's kind of a bummer. I don't know. If I want to hike fast, I listen to 80s Van Halen sometimes, and that's I don't know. So it's just. Uh, the whole the whole hour before this podcast, I've been blasting fifty one fifty actually. So yes, yeah, pour pour one out for for Eddie. Um, now, just out of curiosity, and I know because obviously we did do that one fundraiser for you. Like, if people do, if we you people do donate to you, um, would you be? I mean, obviously, I don't know what that would require. If you're hiring a whole other teacher, I'm assuming that's that's quite a large sum of money. But I mean, you know. Hey, people, if you are doing well, you have some extra, you know, there's kids need to get outside. So, and so donations are, you know, even, even the smallest donations, um, we replace gear all the time. I'll tell you, teenagers are pretty hard on backpacking gear. So, um, yeah, we, we, uh, we, we, we always welcome any kind of donations that, uh, that people can give. And, and we've, we've got them and we, uh, we appreciate that. Most of our funding comes from grants. Um, I write grants every chance I get. Um, we've got $30,000 worth of backpacking gear um, that we can take kids out into the backcountry with, so they don't need to bring anything with them. Uh, so, uh, and, and a lot of that gear was, was purchased as replacement on donations. So absolutely appreciated. Uh, sorry, um, Adam, you know, you obviously mentioned that your funding is based on last spring. And so you're sort of stuck right now, but what what does the future look like for Atlas Academy? Like what, in a perfect world, in a dream world, like how would you be scaling? Would it be more students, more teachers, you know? Yeah, I mean, just what, what does the future look like for you in a perfect dream scenario? We, uh, we, have, that, we have that scenario in our heads for sure. I mean, um, in, a, in a perfect world, we will continue to grow um, not for growth's sake, but grow to serve the students that want to be with us. And obviously right now with a, with a waiting list as, as sizable as we have right now, um, it's obvious that kids want to be with us. So in a perfect world, um, we will build out to somewhere around 200, maybe 250 students 
um, of all grades from kindergarten through 12th. Um, in a perfect world, we will hire probably 12 to 15 teachers overall to service those children um, in grades K through 12. Uh, in that perfect world, we would offer um, some choices for the younger students, uh, since they are more of my specialty in terms of an option to uh, more of a blended option. So you're on campus two days a week and you're distance learning three days a week. Um, kind of sounds familiar right now to the rest of the world through COVID, uh, but it wasn't something that was done much prior to COVID. Um, but again, might be something that, that even more people are interested in. Uh, in that perfect world, we have somebody that is just in charge of outdoor education, writes all the curriculum, the grants, and takes the kids out. Uh, in that perfect world, we have a couple administrators. And, um, and in that perfect world, to top it all off, we have two vehicles. Because uh, my district doesn't have any vehicles that uh, work for us, so we have to rent every single vehicle that we take students on every single trip for. Um, which is a vast majority of what I'm writing grants for right now is just to cover those rental costs. Uh, so, so our perfect world includes a lot, uh, but uh, I think it's completely attainable. We were, we were just about to get started um, hiring our first person for this school year that we just started, um, but uh, COVID, COVID changed that like it changed so much in this world and uh, hopefully only pauses us for about a year before we can get going on that trajectory again and, and start moving towards what we ultimately want to see Atlas grow out to be. Uh, hey, Adam, so you guys are serving the, you know, the area around Lincoln. And what if, you know, somebody who's listening to the podcast says, you know, this sounds really awesome. I wish we had something like this, you know, in, in, in our school district. What advice could you give them to get something fired up or where, where do you start? I mean, that seems like a one of those it's one of those huge, gnarly, you know, challenges like hiking the Appalachian Trail that until you do it, you don't really know what it's, you're getting into. What advice would you give to them? Um, my advice would be not to reinvent the wheel. There's 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 a lot of good programs out there um, and they all do. Um, do, 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 it, do it differently and do what they do differently. But there's a lot of great programs and a lot of people who are very, very, very willing to share what they're doing. Um, I've really found that in education on the whole in terms of trying to start the charter school to begin with, that anybody that was doing something even remotely similar to what I wanted to do was so good that somebody else wanted to do something similar that they were willing to share all their work um, and, and that's kind of the key. And, and if anybody in a, in a district is, is interested in, in, in doing something similar, um, that would be my advice. And I am always more than willing to, uh, to talk to people um, and to you know, kind of share what's worked and what hasn't worked. Um, and a lot of the things I've learned in the, in the five straight years that, uh, that I've been running Atlas. But it's, uh, it's a gift to be able to build something to, to have the resources and, and the support to build something. And I, I, I think that sharing that gift uh, is, is a way to give back. So I know that I would be willing to share um, what I've learned, just like so many shared to help me build um, what we've built at this point. So speaking of advice, like what advice would you give to kids who might be interested in joining your program? And what advice would you say give to parents who might be interested in having kids join your program or a program like yours in another district? 
Well, right now, patience for sure, because it's hard to uh, it's hard to get in anywhere educationally right now. Um, but I would I would really urge families and students to do some research and find out what is in their area, which isn't hard to do with some basic Google searches, um, and 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 to sit down with some people in some different programs and find out what your options are and what they offer. Um, and how much power and control you're going to have of your education in each in each of those programs because that's what I've found is the key for our program and why so many students want to be a part of it is they get a, a really large amount of power and control in terms of what they study, how they study it, the speed that they go. Um, so doing some research will will definitely benefit both students and families who are reaching out and I get probably five emails easy a week, sometimes 10 or 15, um, of people that have questions, people that are looking to possibly join or just want to know more about our program. Um, so that's the way to do it. And so, you know, for those of us who may or may not have a master's in education, like, <laughs> how would, how do you find your teachers? How do teachers, you know, like, where, where does your teaching pool come from? Um, how does sort of that structure work? Well, I am the only full-time employee of the school, but my credential covers me through eighth grade um, in a multiple subject credential. So I service all children eighth grade and under in all their subjects. So those students just have their four core subjects, their language arts, their math, their science, and their history. Um, and that's, that's what I am in charge of in terms of grading work and um, assigning curriculum. Then I am blessed and lucky enough to leverage the four high school teachers in the adjacent uh, continuation high school named Phoenix High. And I use their four teachers to service my high school students. And they are the teachers of record um, for all of my students in high school. So my English teacher has ninth through 12th grade English children. My math teacher has about 12 different math subjects. My science teacher has you know, a variety of science. And my um, history teacher has all the history courses that you would take um, to graduate from high school. And they are the teachers of record in those courses and have agreed to, to do that basically to help Atlas grow. They're committed to the school. They're committed to um, seeing that it grows in terms of the number of students walking up to our door and trying to register for our school. Um, the hope is that then we can start um, replacing their duty. So they're not working at two schools, they're now working at one again. And that's where it comes to hiring one of each of those high school subject teachers, um, which the first was supposed to be this year, and then at least one a year, if not two, for the next few years. And then we can start adding teachers um, uh, in different grade levels below that. In terms of who those teachers are, um, it is a public school, so there are a lot of um, rules and regulations in terms of hiring, um, and part of that is that um, most of that, not most of, a lot of that hiring will come from within the school district. So other teachers that are in other positions in the school district would interview for a position that came open if they were interested and if they fit the requirements of that position. And the requirements of the positions in Atlas 
at least for the first five or six positions, are going to be based heavily on um, an interest, a willingness um, to be in the backcountry, to get wilderness first responder certified, to be able to carry a 50-pound backpack for days on end, um, all of those things. So you've really got to you've got to fit those those strict requirements to even apply for that job, um, and then you know, just like any job, there'll be a hiring team that, uh, that interviews them. But that's kind of the process. And right now, like I said, we're, we're lucky enough to have these, these four amazing committed teachers at Phoenix that are doing double time while they teach at their own high school and they're servicing my, my high school students. So, and one of those four teachers, the history teacher, is my other half on all of our backcountry excursions. So there are always two adults on all of our trips. So, and, and how many kids do you have per backpacking trip? Um, well, the number of kids we take is based on the fact that we're renting cars. So um, the most kids, the, the, the largest number of kids we usually take is eight um, in terms of renting a couple Suburbans and having room for gear. Um, and that's also a good number in terms of two adults. Four to one is about as far as I'd want to stretch it right now. Um, again, once we start hiring more teachers, you know, we hire another teacher and maybe we can take 12 kids on an excursion. Um, but having more than about 12 students out there at a time uh, feels pretty big to me. Um, I, we also have taken trips with just three or four students and two adults, um, which is amazing in all kinds of different ways. Uh, so so it's, it's kind of the, the run between about three, four and about eight. We try to fill the cars, though, because we're paying for them, obviously. We should do a shameless plug. If there's any car dealership or car brand right? <laughs> who wants to support this amazing school and academy, in yeah. the show notes, you'll know how to contact Adam Salinger. <laughs> like a no-brainer. I'll take it. <laughs> or, or even if you have, like, an old van with, like, a wizard painted on the side of it. Or, like, rainbows and stars, right? A unicorn. We need a, a unicorn painted on the side of it that you're not using. You know, hey, let's get some kids in the outdoors, listeners. Come on. Actually, a yeah, howling wolf. wolf. That, that would be the perfect, perfect like, oh, like 70s. howling at the moon. Yes, that would yes. be the perfect uh, Atlas mobile, I think. Yeah, so. whatever happened to the, the vans with the murals on the side? Boy, that was something, you know? Well, didn't it, like, didn't Volkswagen come out with literally a vehicle called Atlas? Yeah, yes, they did. <laughs> Just saying, Adam. Yeah. If they have a third row in there. I know, I know, I know, I know. I've talked to... That's the tough one. I've talked to lots of car dealerships and, um, you know, we're still pretty small, right? So it's, you know, we've gotten our name out there and we've had a lot written up about us. I've made lots of presentations, um, but we're still pretty small. Uh, our, our biggest um, supporter is a um, organization called Placer Community Foundation. Um, they offer up um, grants to nonprofits uh, every single year. And I believe the last two or maybe three years, we've been awarded um, a grant of uh, $5,000 from them, which has gone a long way in terms of paying for transportation for, for a year. So uh, they, they, they've, they've been looking into try to help us get a, get a car as well. So we're not giving up, but it sure wouldn't help, I'll tell you. So Adam, I mean, I think that's a good place to say like so how do people find out about you how do people find out more about atlas um uh, uh, we'll obviously put this in the show notes but what's the best way for people who are curious to learn more 
So a uh, few places. We've, we've got a website, atlas.wpusd.org. Atlas um, that's our school district website, and it leads you right to our page for our school, and there's a ton of information on that page. You can get a really good idea of how our school runs. Um, you can get a good idea of uh, the kind of outdoor activities we do. Um, there's, there's all kinds of information on it. Uh, teachers that are giving information to, to my students as well. Uh, we are on uh, Instagram and Facebook at Atlas Learning Academy. Um, and I post most days. Um, up until this year, I posted every day. Um, and it was always uh, a picture of some current outdoor stuff we were doing. I don't have any current outdoor stuff right now. So I'm kind of digging back into the, to the realm of what we've done for five years. And I'm continuing to post as well. But those are the best places to, to kind of find out a little bit more about us and get an idea of what we're about. I got I to gotta say, Adam, I was looking at the, your website and uh, kind of going through the, the kudos page uh, where you have you know, sort of testimonials, from some of them from students or you know, parents or grandparents of students and uh, really impressed by some of the comments that I, I read there. So I'd, I'd recommend, highly recommend that anybody who wants to learn more about Atlas check out that kudos page as well. It's really neat to see. So Adam, what's your favorite part about teaching kids and taking kids in the outdoors? The biggest personal benefit for me is when I take kids out and they see the stars for the first time because they can't see the stars in their city. Um, or when they see a satellite for the first time and never seen one or really heard of one before. Um, or when they touch snow for the first time or the Pacific Ocean for the first time. Those are pretty special things. And I think, you know, getting, getting to watch kids experience those things. Um, one of the most special things that ever happened was we were up in Desolation Wilderness at uh, Half Moon Lake. And we were watching a golden eagle in a tree for about 20 minutes. And uh, as we were watching it, it swooped down out of the tree, hit the water in front of us, grabbed a fish and flew right over us. And, and not one of those kids could, could find words to, uh, to express what they had just seen in that moment. And just to be able to give kids the opportunity for those experiences, uh, I, I feel very blessed to be able to do what I do on a daily basis. Obviously as a public school, I'm assuming you get kids from a whole bunch of different economic and, and cultural backgrounds. Um, how does that affect you know, your teaching? What is that experience like? I mean, I'm sure a lot of kids from different you know, backgrounds end up together on these trips that probably would not really spend time together. That must be pretty amazing. Yeah, you actually just answered your own question, right? I mean, having kids out there that are so, um, so different at the core from each other and have maybe never experienced um, anyone like that other person before um, is another one of those powerful effects because just like um, these kids are forming relationships if they are similar in the backcountry. They form those same relationships if they are worlds away in terms of their experiences or their backgrounds or their um, socioeconomic uh, status, uh, their race, their religion, all of those things. And, and you're right, I, I, have, I have the entire melting pot of all those things in Atlas. Um, and it's a very positive thing. I grew up in Los Angeles and I grew up in that melting pot. And then I, I, moved, uh, I moved up the coast and I moved out of that melting pot. And I know how powerful it is to grow up in an environment where you are exposed to people who are different. Uh, so that's a, that's a great advantage for us. 
people from so many different types of kids. Um, but the biggest plus is to be able to get them away from what they're comfortable with and get them into the backcountry where all they have is each other. Um, and they start noticing that they're really more similar than they are different in lots of ways. That's great. Well, well, Adam, again, thank you so much for coming on. And, and you know, I think what you do is amazing. It's so cool that you've created this and that you run it. And, you know, I'm, I can only imagine how great it is for these kids to have these experiences. Also, I'm excited to, you know, for our next trip, whatever that may be. I want to get out with you again. It was, it was, thanks for meeting up with us on the Ruby Crest Trail. It was, it was a lot of fun having you along. Wish you best of luck on, on everything with Atlas and on your, your future adventures. Thanks. It's been terrific hanging out with you guys today. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Adam. And uh, again, thanks for joining us on the Ruby Crest Trail last month. That was a lot of fun. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at adventure us women. That's adventure us women, Jeff at the SoCal hiker or me at the Muir project. Our title track almost there is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, and as always, thanks for listening.